Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode one for the week ending May 11th, 2013. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, how are you doing? Doing great this morning. How are you? We're on a podcast. We are on a podcast. It's very exciting. It's so great. And uh, the agenda tells me that we're supposed to banter now. We are bantering. This is banter. Yeah, this is banter. What's that David Foster Wallace uh, commencement speech that's going around right now? This is water. This is water. Yeah, I want a satirical one that's called This is Banter. <laughs> mocks David Foster Wallace. That'd be pretty good, right? That would be great. It's kind of unmockable because it's almost self-parody, the stuff that he does in a way. Yeah. Anyway. Could you footnote it? Can you footnote you have to. a commencement address? I don't know how you would do that. You'd need like a second screen like right next to him or something like that. I have to confess, I have never watched the video of the David Foster Wallace. I, I haven't watched. Is that is that video new or is it just making the rounds now again? The I video the is new. I think the text of the speech has been going around mm. for a while or like the, maybe the audio recording. Yeah. Um, I've never read him, which well. maybe I should be ashamed to admit. Mm. Um but for you know, some reason, I just resist it. I don't know why. It's a it's a big thing to get into. You know, we're, no one's going to judge you for that here. You're in a right, safe that's space. That's true. Rebecca. This is a safe place. This is. Should we say what we're going to do with this show for a minute? Yeah, let's Besides do it. Besides just this end, endlessly uh, tapping our feet as we're fascinating going. as we are. So what are we going to do? Tell me, because I have no idea. Uh, we're going to talk about cool and interesting things that happened in the world of books this uh, week. Don't, don't read my copy back to me. Don't do that. Okay. <laughs> what are we really going to do? Okay, so we're going to talk about the big stories, the yeah, stuff that go. got tweeted around, um, the things that you couldn't avoid if you lived in the book internet, and mm-hmm. maybe why they're interesting for readers. Uh, I would. I guess we will probably also talk about some of the things that other people cared about that we don't think are interesting at some point. I guess point. so, yeah. I guess we have to do some of that stuff, right? Like yeah. Make you talk, make you listen to things that we think are interesting and no one else does. Mm-hmm. That what's the point of a podcast if not? <laughs> right. This is our sandbox. <laughs> yeah. And we're gonna play. So this is our first episode. So if you guys have ideas for what we should do, what you'd like us to hear, um, let us know. We do have an email set up for this. You'll hear it at the end. But again, it's a uh, it's podcast at bookriot.com. and we are looking at that. Or you can hit us on Twitter. You can hit us at bookriot, and we're looking at that all the time. Maybe obsessively. I don't want to speak for you, but. Yeah, obsessively. <laughs> obsessively. That's fair. Sorry, that was dead air where I was like, yeah, of course it's obsessive. Of course, of course. It, and you're not, wait, oh, I'm supposed to own that. I didn't, didn't, wasn't even feeling guilty. Um, <laughs> so the big story this week, I, there's just one, right? I, I mean, we have others, the but there is, you know, this is the big, the big story. Maybe of the year? I was thinking about that. Is this oh. the biggest? I mean, who knows what's going to happen in terms of breaking news, but... Yeah. I, it, it's pretty big. I mean, I think it's a big deal. We thought it was going to be the big story of last year. Right. And then they We're talking about it. the Great Gatsby movie. We haven't said that yet, have we? No, we haven't. Yeah, that's that's it. Everyone's talking about it. There have been a million Gatsby posts. A mil- and that, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Yeah. The, like 90% of the bookish internet And we've written been. some of them. I mean, we we're have. culpable. And that's okay. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah, it's, it's the thing right now. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio and... Toby Maguire. Have you looked at the reviews? I looked at the reviews a little bit. Have you looked at the reviews? No, I haven't. You're going to go see it though. I'm going to go see it. I think I'm going to go see it tomorrow and back to back it with Iron Man 3 because billionaire philanthropist playboys. That's that's spot on. That's Uh really good. Well, 
can I talk about some of the reviews just real quick? And yeah, I think you terms? should. So it seems to me the upshot is DiCaprio's great. Um, mm-hmm. Lurman is a Lurman doing what you would expect from Lurman, and it's kind of a mess. It's kind of a mess. Yeah, I, I'm so interested slash nervous about what the experience is going to be right. like because I loved the Romeo and Juliet take yeah, me too. That, that Baz Luhrmann did. I was also like 15 when it came out. So I don't know if I didn't have great taste when I was 15 or not. I haven't watched it since then. I don't really trust my 15-year-old I don't self. trust 15-year-old with good taste. They're just, yeah, they're like that's right. Um, but Moulin Rouge, so great and such a spectacle. I'm just not sure that Gatsby wants to be a spectacle. Yeah. I mean, that's also one of the things the reviews touched on is it's kind of a somber book for being a jazz age book. And that's mm-hmm. not what um, Baz did with it. It's yeah. uh, it's big. It's flashy. It's a fever dream. It's um, spectacular, spectacular. Yeah, it's spectacular. So that seems to be the uh, takeaway from it so far. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I'm not going to see it anytime soon because I don't leave the house. Um, <laughs> but I will be there the first day it's available on Netflix or something like that. Yeah. Um, are you the, are, Do you get worried about these kind of adaptations of books that you love? Are you the one no. that you're kind of those kind of people? Not really. I mean, a bad adaptation isn't going to change how I feel about the book. And right. sometimes when the adaptation is so bad, I think it's kind of entertaining. Like right. the, uh, the Demi Moore version of The Scarlet Letter has to be oh, so. <laughs> like the worst oh, book that's to bad. movie take ever. It's terrible. Or as our good friend Charles Barkley would say, terrible. it's terrible. Um, yeah, I mean, some people really get uh, upset about it. And I, I've never really understood. I, I do and don't understand why. I mean, part yeah. of it is something that you love, pe- someone mangling it. That's never fun. Doesn't. Yeah, I guess the bummer is to think about people who haven't read the book and don't know the story. If the if the movie is your introduction to what Gatsby is and the movie blows, yeah. then, you know, then maybe they're not going to read the book. Maybe they're going to miss what I think is a great and important story and piece of literature for American culture. But like, really? Okay, so that bums me out that right. somebody might miss it. But it's not like that's a huge problem for the world if a bunch of people just decide not to read The Great Gatsby. But it seems to me like even a bad Hollywood adaptation gets so many more people to read the book that oh, for sure. probably you come out way ahead even if you turn some people off to a bad adaptation or yeah, something actually, they don't like. That's the thing I'd really love to see is Gatsby sales numbers in the last year compared to well, Gatsby it's, it's sales been numbers. It's number one on the indie charts for mm-hmm. several weeks in, in the top 10 really since I think the news came out firming up the release date a few months ago. It's mm-hmm. consistently been towards the top. So people are reading the book. Yeah. Last week I was hanging out uh, in, at River Run Bookstore in Portsmouth, New Hampshire with one of our Book Riot contributors, Liberty Hardy. And while I was sitting in the store just for a couple of hours, several people came in and asked for The Great Gatsby and she sold the last copy. And then she mm. had to tell a couple of other people that she had just sold the last copies of The Great Gatsby. So it's it's definitely happening. Um, book clubs are picking it up and reading it with each other, maybe for the first time. Um, it's certainly, I think, generate a new interest yeah. in this in this title. And maybe even if it sucks, uh, people who trust Baz Luhrmann to pick cool things and who wouldn't have picked up Gatsby on their own are going to check it out and see what it's all about. I, I can't think of a book that's been ruined by an adaptation, like that's no. just completely destroyed its reputation or standing in the history of whatever. You know, it just, it just doesn't really happen as far as I can tell. Now, that might mean that something did get destroyed and I just haven't heard of it. Mm. Um, but it seems like I there's like three possibilities, right? So... If it's an unknown book and the movie's good, well, that's great. That's awesome. If it's an unknown book and the movie sucks, well, you're back to square one of unknown being unknown. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's a good book and the movie sucks, well, then people still have the book. And you get all those great angry internet rants about how the book is so much better and hopefully yeah. your sales just go up then. And if it's a good adaptation of a good book, then that's great. So I don't, it's hard for me to think of a scenario where it's like really bad for the book or the book's reputation to have a movie made about it. I guess it's, if it's a complete mes- misrepresentation, maybe. Maybe. That's the only thing I can it's, really come up with. It's one of those things that feels like it carries so much weight for yeah. readers when a book that you love gets made into a movie. But when you, tr- when you apply some logic to the situation, right. uh, it's not it's not so scary. I think Simon Birch is a terrible, terrible thing that, that was done to John Irving's Prayer for Owen Meany, which is one of my favorite books and a, a big, beautiful story about a person's whole life. And it gets made into this tiny story about a tiny person um, in just a portion of his life. Life, and that by no means ruined John Irving. And even uh, if that were named, even if the movie was named Owen Meany, Owen Meany, I don't think it would do any damage to the book necessarily. If anything, there'd be more yeah. people reading it. So I, I can understand these books that we love that someone screws around with doesn't feel good, but it's hard to think about what the real effects of it are going to be mm-hmm. over time. I always think it's great. Right. Make I'm, a movie out of something, it's great. I, yeah, I'm the most interested really in the soundtrack here. Oh, I think, yeah. uh, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald or the soundtrack created by Jay-Z, has, like that has to be interesting. Yeah, it is, is. I mean, it's hard to, one of the hard things to capture about The Great Gatsby is that the book was contemporary with the modernity and the music and it felt new at the time. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, the 1974 Redford version was a period piece, right? So, you know, you kind of have to pick your poison. You're either going to be faithful and have it be a period piece and have like ragtime in it, or you're going to have to make it feel modern by using something that's modern. So I think it's an interesting choice. And I say more Gatsby adaptations, the better. Let's just do a billion of them. I mean, if, if we could just stop remaking Amy Winehouse songs, though, that <laughs> yeah. would be great. <laughs> well, I mean, seriously, like the Pride and Prejudice adaptations haven't hurt Pride and Prejudice, if anything, it's solidified it even more so as, you know, one of the central novels that anyone should talk about Mm -hmm. in the English language. And having not seen it yet, it seems like what Baz Luhrmann is doing is combining that period piece sensibility, like it's going to look like the 20s. It's just not going to sound Mm -hmm. like the 20s. And I was thinking, what would it sound like if it did sound like the 20s? And I keep thinking, well, it would just sound like the Chicago soundtrack. Like Catherine Zeta-Jones would tell you to rouge your knees and roll your stockings down. (laughs) That's That's a really good point. It doesn't, that doesn't feel new and exciting. I I think it's interesting too, to wonder about um, Gatsby almost as a character, it exceeds the novel at this point. Like it's almost an American icon, like Huck Mm -hmm. Finn or George Washington, even like it's even transcends the novel that this figure of Gatsby and, you know, this rich guy who's in love with this woman he can't have is a totemic figure. And Oh, for sure. I think that's really, it's like American mythography. And so I don't get too upset about the book being distorted in some way because it's, it can't touch that, you know, it's, it's like elemental at this point to American mm-hmm. culture. So anything else there? What else is interesting about Gatsby? I don't know. There's lots of fancy clothes. <laughs> lots of fancy clothes. You want your jewelry, cocktail? Uh, I would I would love, yeah, a diamond bracelet and a martini right yeah. now. It is 1047 a.m. and I would like a diamond bracelet and a martini. Thank Those people you. could dress back then. They could. They could. And they could drink, boy. And there was that sense that you got dressed up to go to a party and to drink your cocktails and see your friends. And, you know, like you got tanked and you probably did embarrassing things and passed out on the lawn, but you looked good doing so it. So good. You got a feather in your little hairband and you got your tuxedo and you're looking fine. Oh, man, Jeff, I really want to see you with a feather in your hairband. <laughs> not not so much band. Uh, more, <laughs> a little more band than hairband. You could have a headband, perhaps. Yeah. So, Sweat yeah, it'll be interesting to see how... Uh, 
how it goes and what the box office does because they moved it to the summer, so I think they're expecting it to do big business. There's a lot right. of advertising around it, and and it opened last night. We're we're recording oh, yeah. Friday morning. Some of you so may have seen it last night. Um, right now, you have seen it already, and all this is speculation that you don't care about anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's, we've got a sponsor. We do have a sponsor. We, first, it's great. Speaking it's, of it's, drinking, it's, it's perfect. It couldn't work out better. This is uh, the good folks at No Let's Silver Dry Gin sponsoring the first Book Riot podcast. Gin. I mean, that's the drink of the twenties. That that was it. Yeah, gin. Um, but and this the drink is, of the summer. This is No Let's Silver Dry Gin. It's a modern gin. It's not your uh, pine salt tasting gin that you would have had in a bathtub in Great Gatsby. Um, floral arrangements, Turkish rose, peach, raspberry. The No Let's folks, they, they, they made Kettle One Vodka. I know you guys know about that. These No Let's guys have been making gin for 300 years. That's a lot of gin. That is a lot of gin. wonder if they ever made it in bathtubs. Probably. I mean, this is small batch distillation, and that's a small batch, so you never know. Uh, did you like that? That was good, right? That, <laughs> that, was, was, that was nice. That was something. You don't laugh. Because you ruined the read then. So check them out, No Let's Gin on Facebook.com slash No Let's Gin. Thanks so much for uh, helping us out with this first podcast and being a good sport. Couldn't be better for Gatsby. Gatsby really just makes you want to drink. It really, it I mean, does. it really does. It must be terrible if you're an alcoholic and you see all these ads. Mm. I mean, just, yeah, it's just, Gatsby just romantic drinking all the time. Well, and it's making gin cool. Yeah, again, definitely. Like, because, you know, Ron Swanson would say that clear liquors are for rich old ladies on diets. Oh, that's true. Gin. Gin hasn't had its moment as whiskey and bourbon and really even vodka had a few years ago, it feels like. Mm-hmm. So maybe gin, gin's the next thing Gatsby's going to enter in the uh, era of gin, like the age of Aquarius. <laughs> 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 uh, all right. What's our next story? What are we going to do next? Our next story, well, speaking of big classic books that are having moments again, uh, Harper Lee, who is 87 now, uh, to the surprise of many Book Riot readers who have told us they were surprised to find out that she was still alive, yeah, is suing. True. Uh, to regain the copyright of To Kill a Mockingbird. She's suing the son-in-law of her former agent, who apparently, allegedly, I guess I should say, uh, he allegedly used to his advantage her declining hearing and eyesight uh, to have her sign over the copyright to the book to him several years ago, um, which in publishing is not a thing that is done. It's uh, not really appropriate for an agent to try to maintain the copyright of an author's book. And so she's suing him to regain the copyright for To Kill a Mockingbird. And that's not just too a, much a is known about it. Terrible story. Like, just a who, horrible story. Who screws with Harper Lee? I don't know, man. That... Oh, boy, that's like leaving a whoopee cushion for Santa Claus. Just don't do that. That's not cool at all. It's just so, it's so just bad. so wrong. I mean, and the makes, phrase son-in-law of former agent, you know, that's right. not a good, you don't, you it's don't a like little to gross. That. That's kind of gross, kind of gross. Well, also, I'm, how I'm do you, I'm someone's just, helping her out. I I'm mean, sort of impressed. Like, how do you allegedly steal a copyright or obtain it through uh, less than above the table means from someone whose book is so big and think you're not going to get caught? Like that's, it's impressively gutsy. Well, you know, I knew something weird was going on with the copyright. Because right? I did a story a while back about mm-hmm. classics, you know, big books that you still couldn't get as an ebook. Right. And uh, To Kill a Mockingbird was on, well, sort of. You can get a $90 ebook somehow. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And it was it's very fishy. And I couldn't figure out like what the company was about. And so this makes a lot more sense there is that something, something really wrong happened. You know, I don't know. There's been rumors that Harper Lee hasn't been in super great shape for a while, but I'm glad that someone, either her or someone close to her, the warning bells went off and like, let's get this taken care of while we can do something about it. Because it would be a real shame if her estate and her didn't 
get to control it for the you know nine thousand years that American copyright allows you to control your uh, intellectual property. But um, boy, that's a bad story. It is. It's just a sad story. Just a sad. I'm, I don't even know what to say about it. I don't. I, I don't either. Good for you, Harper Lee, for going yeah, after good for you, this. Harper Lee. This jerk, um, everybody has to be pulling for Harper Lee to have yeah. copyright. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no case where you can be like, yeah, you know, really? She shouldn't have it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I mean, it would be a son-in-law, former agent is a bad story, no matter who the author is, but especially for a work that is so central to American culture and to how we talk about books yeah. in, in American classics. Uh, that's it's huge. We want this book to be taken care of oh, for, for as sure. long as it can be. And then when it comes into the public domain, we can count down to the Boo Radley book. Oh, sweet. To kill which, a mockingbird and zombies. <laughs> right. Oh, good grief. No, I don't want that to happen. Yeah. Uh, I think, a, you know, a Boo Radley shifted narrative thing. Didn't you write about that? I think you wrote about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where it'd be cool to see a version of To Kill a Mockingbird from Boo Radley's point of view. That would be cool. I'm a little terrified for what else is going to happen to it, though. So let's protect it for as long as we can. Well, the copyright please. rules are such that, you know, you and I will have to be Harper Lee's age before that's even close to possibility right. of happening. So, you know, but uh, good on Harper Lee. She's our hero of the week for us, for sure. Yes. For a lot of reasons. But uh, getting her copyright back is definitely one of them. All right, let's move on. That's a sad story. Let's move on that to is. something happy. Oh, we got birthdays. 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 Not ours, sadly. Nope. Uh, one thing we want to do is, you know, authors who had birthdays last week. So we got two big ones from last week. Um, May 8th, Thomas Pynchon. Uh, you all know him as someone maybe you haven't read but have heard of. Born on May 8th, 1937. So that's happy 76th birthday to Thomas Ruggles Pynchon, who was born Ruggles? in... Glen Ruggles? I know, it's great, <laughs> Oh, right? man, that's amazing. Born in Glen Cove, New York in 1937. Um, so my, my trivia about him, uh, he married his agent, Melanie Jackson, which is trivia enough, but she is the great-granddaughter of Teddy Roosevelt. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. Pretty good. And Pynchon, you know, famously doesn't like to talk to reporters. Um, he doesn't like to be called reclusive because he's not really reclusive. He just doesn't want people publishing his picture and talking to people who publish what he says. So um, he's out there. The last time I think anyone saw him was in like 1997 walking around New York with his son. Mm, um, yeah, if you Google image search Thomas Pynchon, almost everything you get is when he was like 35. Yeah, yeah, though he's a good sport about it too because he did do some cameos on The Simpsons playing himself with a paper bag over his cartoon head. <laughs> but his real voice, which is I, pretty great. I now just really need to believe that like when he checks into a hotel under a pseudonym, he goes in as Mr. Ruggles. Yeah, or he goes in as Thomas Pynchon because no one will believe it. Right, that's true. He just, he has, it's like the Perlin letter hiding in plain sight. Um, so that's number Ruggles. one. May eighth, and uh, number two, Richard George Adams, born May 9th, nineteen twenty. Do you know? Do you know Richard George Adams? I don't. I was just about to ask, but I'm. I see your notes here. That oh, Watership Down. He wrote Watership Down. Oh, did you read that? I did. Yeah, it's bunnies. It bunnies. Bunnies. The, the name the your story, bunnies. The story Ruggles. of the Aeneid told through bunnies, which is. I mean, we all read this, right? When we were sure. kids. I mean, it's great. It's so good. How is it that I know his book but not his name? Well, that was his big hit. Yeah. That was it. Um, 1974, I think. I don't have it in front of me here. Mm -hmm. um, he actually started, the story started by him uh, telling the story to his uh, daughters through Bunnies and the Aeneid. And they said, you know what, Dad? You've got to publish this. So he wrote it, spent two years writing it, and published it. That's cool. And, Bunnies that's, not even, make... that's not even my factoid. That's not even the good one. I'm saving the good factoid. You Give it, it to me. This is Penguin's best-selling novel of all time. Well, Number one penguin novel, including Penguin Classics, all that, all of it. Whoa, that's that's what the internet said. You go, Richard George Adams. That's right. He made a lot of money off of it. And, Bunnies. Uh, he's still alive. 
Still alive. So he was born in 1920, so he is, you know, however old that is. You know, that's a cool way to retell a really old classic story. I think more people should do an anthropomorphized version of classic literature. Because now we get, you know, like, here's the story of the Odyssey retold as if Odysseus is gay. No, no. Which is interesting. We want Oedipus with cows. Bunnies, please. Yeah, but, but everything's better. You know what? Puppies? The internet, can we the get internet's puppies? internet's ready for this. Can I get, like, The Inferno retold with puppies? Oh, that would be such a sad story because you, you've read The Inferno, right? It doesn't end Many well times. with the puppies if it's uh, It's the true. Inferno okay, puppies. so I love puppies too much. Let's not do that to the puppies. Yeah, maybe, like, rats in The Inferno or cockroaches. Mm-hmm. Um, cockroaches in The Inferno. Yeah, that's that's good. good. Maybe that's what Dan Brown's new book is going to be. <laughs> Oh, that's next week. We oh we have to, May fourteenth. We have to wait on that's next week's show, not this show. Yeah, May fourteenth, Dan Brown. I'm reading Inferno. the hell out of that book. Next oh, week. me too. Like the day it comes out. Absolutely. I may actually just take the day off because you know Dan Brown. It's work. That's right. Oh, that's true. We can write some stuff about Dan. If you got ideas about what to write about Dan Brown that hasn't been done before, let us know. And we're not being ironical at all. That's yeah, no, we're going to read it. So those are happy birthdays to Richard George Adams and Thomas Pynchon. So. Happy birthday, guys. Man, Both. I feel happier after that segment. That was Classics a good one. with bunnies and Thomas Pynchon's yeah, middle name good. is Ruggles, which is like the only thing I need to hear this week in order to have a good week. <laughs> I know. It's kind of awesome. Um, you get to read the next story, Slug, because I can't say the author's name. <laughs> We've been practicing. I have been practicing. You so ready? One of, Here's your big moment. Do it. I'm ready. Uh, one of the big things that happened in books over the last week was uh, Claire Messud, who... Nice, nice. You, thank you. You might know her previous book, The Emperor's Children, and now she has a new novel out called The Woman Upstairs, which is a play on uh, the mad woman in the attic. You know, that nice trope about what Mr. Rochester did to his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she has been interviewed widely uh, for this new novel and Publishers Weekly interviewed her and asked her a question about the likability of one of the characters. The way that it was set up was the interviewer said, I don't think that I'd want to be friends with this main character. What do you think about that? And rather than addressing likability, uh, Claire Massoud did not appreciate this question and said, what kind of a question is that? And then went on to talk about other authors. You know, what if we what if we always were looking for friends in books? People shouldn't read looking for friends. And then she lists off like Philip Roth and other authors who write unlikable characters that you would not want to be friends with. Uh, so she gave this interview to Publishers Weekly. A bunch of other people picked up on the story and wrote a whole bunch so of responses many. to it. And oh, so many I think there's a couple interesting things here. One yeah, of them are. is like, is, is this, is it an unfair question to ask an author about their characters being likable or not? Um, buried in her response also, is it bad if readers do want to choose their books based on characters that they like and want to spend time with and would be friends with in the real world? And is it, the real issue here is, is it a sexist question? Right. Is it sexist to ask a female author if her female character is not likable or to imply that it's bad for a female character? Yeah, so much. Inter- this, is a, this is, you know, it's this hairy. is where we this live. This is like we a love, big, hairy this one. This is where we live, right? Mm-hmm. I guess, so to take the most, I guess the most damning part of it would be if it is a sexist thing. Like this is just happens to female characters and women writers, like mm-hmm. that you can't write a protagonist who's a woman unless she's likable and have people care about it and read it. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I feel like every time a new Jonathan Franzen book comes out, the first thing I hear readers say is, I hate all the characters. Oh, yeah. So I'm not going to, I don't know that it's not true, but my gut feels like that's a question that gets bandied about all the time when there's a book with unlikable people in it. 
Is I that your it, sense of it too? Or what do, what I do you think? I think it does. I think authors in general get asked this question all the time. Yeah. And and it is risky, I guess, to write a book where none of the characters are likable. Um, because there are there there is that subset of readers who don't want to let characters into their brains that they wouldn't want to spend time with. Like yeah. personally, if they are interesting characters, that's what I care about more than if I like them. I think Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl is a perfect example. Nobody in that book is likable. Everybody is terrible and twisted, but she just does her job and gives you good reasons to hate them Mm -hmm. and to keep turning the pages and figuring out what's motivating them. Yeah, that's right. Um, There's a distinction between a likable character and a charismatic or interesting or or somehow other compelling. compelling. Yeah. Yeah, the corollary for me here is Hillary Clinton gave an interview a few years ago where on stage with a, I believe it was a female interviewer, asked her in the middle of, you know, big political important questions, who designed the suit that she was wearing? Mm. And Hillary Clinton looks at the woman and says, what kind of a question is that? And that's all she says. And then, you know, the audience goes crazy. And I felt reading this like Masood was going for a moment like that. Like, how dare you ask me a question? But the difference is it's completely irrelevant who designed Hillary Clinton's suit. It's not completely irrelevant if your character isn't likable. And I would have liked it. It would have been a much better, more interesting interview, I think, if Masood had gone into, well, let's talk about why I write characters that aren't likable. Why is it important for literature to have characters that aren't likable, but that are complex and interesting yeah, in some way. A, I mean, there's a couple of, you know, mysteries within enigmas here, but one of them is the assumption or the belief or the desire that writers have to write things independent of whether or not readers like it that way. That, right. you know, I should be able to write art and screw you if you don't like it. Just that's what I do. I'm an artist and I shouldn't have to care about what you like, mm-hmm. which I understand that. I mean, I understand that. On the other hand, these are real books in the real world that are trying to get bought and sold. Um, right. And most of the people I think we talk to on a daily basis, like that's an important thing for them to spend, you know, multiple hours out of their lives with a book. They want to like it. They want to like the people. They want to be interested in it. Um, I have a hard time getting into blaming the readers for how they choose what books they want to read and how they feel about them. I just have a hard time. Yeah, doing it. I had a really hard time with that part of her response too. Like, so what if some readers choose their books based on characters they'd want to be friends with? I know it's a joy right. to read a book where you're like, this person is awesome. And I had a great time letting these characters run around in my head for a week. Right. That's, I think that's just as valid a reason to choose your books as anything else. Um, I mean, sure I, that- I, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't, I read things that, with characters that I don't particularly like, you know, that's, I don't read just for that necessarily, but I don't Mm -hmm. begrudge anyone that they read for something else. Like people read for all sorts of different reasons. And that doesn't seem a particularly bad one to me. So you could want to like the characters. I I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's particularly bad either. And I I wonder if maybe some of this is a response to pressure from publishers about making books commercially Mm. viable. And there is that tension between what is literary fiction and what is commercially viable fiction. And authors who have massive commercial success often want to be given more literary credibility. And then the writers who have literary credibility and get the accolades want to be bought more and more (laughs) widely read. And it's this like, I sort of think if you're back, you know, if you're like doing the backstroke through your swimming pools full of dollars, you don't get to complain too much that people don't take your writing seriously. Well, or you, you can complain, but just does anyone care? I mean, I don't, I don't, that's the other thing about it because it is a paradox, right? To be, you want both freedom and acknowledgement. And it's just difficult to write something that's super literary and incredibly commercially successful. Well, and, and to write something very literary with characters that people don't like. 
Yeah. I mean, that's just a really hard thing. I mean, it'd be interesting to say, yeah, she's unlikable, but I don't care if readers like and her. Like, your that's goal not the when, point. when you're an author on book tour, who's doing your press junkets and you're doing these interviews, your goal is to try to get readers to be interested in you and your book and to buy it. Like, mm -hmm. presumably that's why she's talking to Publishers Weekly in the yeah. first place is to get people interested. And so I, I also think it's a fail in that respect because her response didn't tell me anything new about her book. Right. Yeah, you know, that's she, true. She turns it out to other books, other unlikable characters. In doing that sort of links up her characters to these other characters that you don't like either. Um, maybe that that's the class of author that she wants to be associated with in terms of mm -hmm. literary quality. I don't, I'm just like yeah. guessing. I was, now I'm I was just wondering guessing. about that too because she, you know, she lists some of the usual suspects like Humbert Humbert from Lolita. I was like, you know what? I think people do like him. Is that, is yeah. that the secret of Lolita? Mm. I mean, he, you know, clearly, you know, he's if you know the story, you know, super compelling, he's very compelling and he's erudite and interesting and conflicted. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know, in a, on a likability spectrum, I think he's on the likable side. And there's something sometimes likable to me about a character you can love to hate. Um, I right. don't know. I don't think, hum I think I do just like Humbert Humbert. Right. Just straight out. Straight out. <laughs> no equivocation. <laughs> Creepy. Bold. That was bold. <laughs> So yeah, that was that was a big story. Um, that was a big thing about whether happened. or not we should talk too much or care, and how we should talk about likable characters. Um, all right, should we do the next one? Yeah, let's do the next one. You read the next one too. You're better at that than I am. All right. So another thing, and I guess a thing that provides context some of for some of the Claire Massoud goings on is that there's a big conversation happening online right now about how books are marketed to men and how they're marketed to women and how potentially a book that contains, you know, my favorite example is the corrections. I think that if the corrections had been written by a woman, we would yeah. have called it domestic drama and it would have, been, <laughs> it would have been women's fiction, literary women's fiction, but women's fiction and mm -hmm. uh, based on the subject matter. So Maureen Johnson, who is a well-known young adult author, challenged uh, people online this week to take uh, popular books and to flip the author's gender and then to redesign the book cover for what those covers would look like if they had been written by men instead of written by women. And the results have been really interesting. Um, the Huffington Post collected a bunch of them. There's just a lot there also. A lot of interesting stuff. Let me stop you right there real quick. We're going to do show notes for the show. And if you want to go find them, um, bookriot.com backslash podcast. We'll have a uh, list of the episodes. Since there's only one right now, it'll mm -hmm. be the only link right now. But we're going to drop this stuff in so you can check this stuff out. Because there are some interesting galleries here of what people have done. I guess unlike the Mesud one, this one feels like it's got more teeth to me. It does. Um, the very first example in the Huffington Post piece is it shows the original cover for A Game of Thrones, George R. R. Martin. It's blue. There's a sword. There's these big, bold letters. And the person who gender flipped it, now the cover is purple. There are swirling lights. There's a woman, like, you know, wearing a breastplate with a right. big jewel in it. Um, it looks dreamy and like fantasy novelish. And they flipped the author's name to be Georgette R. Martin nice. uh, rather than George. Are, are. There's a really great take on Neil Gaiman's Stardust for the original. Um, oh, I'm losing it. The internet is broken. Oh, Nell, uh, Nell Gaiman? I don't Nell know. Gaiman. Nell, Nell Gaiman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Neil Gaiman cover has a starry sky and some bricks and his name in big blue letters and Stardust by Nellie Gaiman. Oh, Nellie. Okay. Has a black and white photo of a man and woman snuggling up against each other and squirrely, like squirrely, swirly. <laughs> 
gold lettering that says love is the greatest magic of all. Oh boy. It's interesting. These are so jarring. And one of the things that is happening too is they're taking uh, the female author's names and abbreviating them to initials when they flip it to be a book marketed towards men, which is a thing that happens in thrillers. And even someone as huge as Nora Roberts now writes thrillers, but she writes them under the um, pen name J.D. Robb. J.K. Rowling was told that she wouldn't sell as many books if her covers had her woman's name. Right. I, I heard, um, and I don't remember if this is true, that I think someone said that to Suzanne Collins about The Hunger Games too, and she said no. Good That's for my her. memory. I could be getting that completely wrong. But at any rate, she did go with Suzanne Collins and sold she a million did. books. She did, and she did just fine. Maybe she would have sold two million books. I don't, you know, you don't know. It's true, yeah, you, you know. never know. But I think this is, it's an interesting thought right. experiment. Well, there's really two separate her. things, right? One is the initial things I think is maybe separate from the covers mm-hmm. or... It's part of it. Because if you can't go by your own name because dudes won't read your book, that sucks. I mean, what else are you going to say about it? Yeah. That just sucks. It does. Bad job, dudes. (laughs) Bad Um, job, dudes. Bad job, dudes. But the other one about that the covers look different being marketed to men towards women, I'm not sure if that's undesirable or avoidable. Like, there's no gender neutral. I mean, is that what people are asking for is they want gender neutral covers? You know, I think the problem with this discussion and the problem with a lot of the big discussions of controversies online is that the nuance gets lost and the goal of the whole thing Well, we're bringing lost. the nuance back. Yeah, we're bringing like, nuance back. JT said that. Mm-hmm. That was the song, right? That, that, is the, that is the song. I'll put on my suit and tie. And <laughs> I'm going to bring that nuance. Right. Um, I think there's two pieces of it. One is that book covers do provide information to readers. And if they didn't provide information to readers, publishers would not spend so much time and money trying to figure out what the right way to do the covers. Oh, and they matter. I mean, we know that just it's, from our own side stuff. Like for sure they love matter. A good cover. I love a good cover. They do. And how we choose books is so layered and complex, but covers are certainly part of it. And they're intended to provide us with information about the book. So sometimes like there's girly stuff on the cover of a book. And it's because that is a book that they think that women or girls, whoever the age group is, are going to be interested in reading. So let's use the cover as a way to convey that information to the readers. So the right readers will pick up the book and then it can be successful. But tied up in that also are publishers, I think, untested assumptions about Mm what men look for in books and what women look for in books. And so they, they sort of guess. And, and this is an open secret about publishing is that a lot of it is throwing spaghetti against right. the wall. A lot of it is uh, we made this decision because it felt like the right thing to do, which if you're a person who likes numbers or data will drive you bonkers. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, but that's what happens. Publishers will say, you know, we tried. It felt like the thing that we should have done. So you get covers of books that maybe have subject matter that would be equally appealing to boys and girls or equally appealing to men and women. But the publisher guessed about who that book was really going to appeal to or who they could sell it to. Yeah. And they made the cover based on those assumptions. And until they start to test that, or I don't know, what do you do? Publish the book with two different covers and do an A-B test about how, which one sells? Yeah, that's the problem. One of the many problems is that you don't have another, you know, another shot. I mean, maybe the paperback, you could think about Mm -hmm. doing something differently that way. Here's a couple questions. One is, who is it hurting? Does that make sense? Like who's, Mm -hmm. let's say Nellie Gaiman wrote um, American Gods or whatever, or Stardust, sorry, that was the example. And it had a different cover. So what? I mean, does that, am I being obtuse? I don't know. Well, I think it's part of, it's at least part of the mythology of book culture that dudes don't read books by women as readily as women will pick up books by men. Oh, I see. It's okay, especially, gotcha. it's especially part of the mythology of science fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. that male readers will not read fantasy stories written by women. 
but Ursula K. But that's, Le Guin. But that's the initials, not the design of the cover, though, right? Well, I think it has. Uh, they're they're tied up together. Like, can you separate the name on the cover and how it's designed from? Well, I guess you could. Right? You could have design? the Neil Gaiman version of Nellie Gaiman's yeah. cover. Um, because the goal, they're trying to sell more. I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? right? They're just trying to sell as many they're, books as they can. They're trying, and they don't necessarily know what works. Right. So they're but guessing. Let's, let's, ex- let's assume for a moment that their choices are completely rational, that they are making the best decision to sell the most number of books. Tough to blame them for that, I guess. It's not publishing's fault that dudes suck when it comes mm-hmm. to reading books by women in fantasy and other genres. Right. It's all tied up. Like, yeah. If publishing, it, we, we should disentangle. If publishing, yeah, totally. <laughs> if publishing got on this and somehow found a magical way to ungender book covers right. or to, to change how they did book covers in a way that made everyone happy, um, that still wouldn't solve immediately the problem of how men choose what to read and how women choose. Yeah what to read. Um, I still don't even know if that's possible. Like gender is so embedded in how we think about things and how things are marketed and how we see the world, you know, rightly or wrongly and mostly wrongly. That's very difficult to do something different. Um, it's a, maybe I, it'll, it's maybe like it'll give women some courage to like not use their initials. Like just do it. Right. I mean, maybe yeah, that's just kind of the message. Just do it. And maybe to get the message out to dudes, like don't be such a stick in the mud and read mm-hmm. Paulette. And, Woodson's right. sci-fi fantasy, urban fantasy, vampire thriller dragon. Yeah. And I think if, I think we're starting to see that. We're starting to see women who have written books on par with, with say, the corrections that handle yeah. those same issues of family life and, you know, suburban depression, all that stuff. The same, that same kind of issue. Women who are writing those books are pushing back against having pink book covers right. because they're saying the stuff in my book is relevant to male readers and female readers. Yeah, and that's I, interesting. I want my book cover to appeal to male readers and female readers. I don't want to be stuck in the ghetto of women's fiction. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I wonder if the move is to try to get women's fiction into literary fiction or just to d- disabuse the idea that there's a, such a thing as literary fiction. I think it's to disabuse the idea that there's such a thing as women's yeah. fiction. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, um, so that's been super interesting to watch. And kudos to Maureen Johnson. That was a creative way to yeah, ask that was the question. Good. And the HuffPo helped, helped her out, right? Yep. Our friends over at HuffPost Books, check that out. We'll put that in the show notes, too. Follow her on Twitter, too. She's fun on Twitter. Marie She's Johnson. real fun on Twitter. As much as it pains me to say someone else is fun on Twitter, I'll do that. <laughs> All right. Someone, someone has to hold down the silliness while you're correcting grammar. I know, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> damn it. Corralling commas. <laughs> all right. The next section is you, too. I'm just giving it all to you. This is your show. Do what you want. Oh, all right. Well, uh, we're going to talk about notable new releases every week, um, books that have just come out or, or, or books that are freshly out in paperback. These are out. These are, you can buy them These now. Are out now. Out now. You can get them in your hot little hands. One of them is very germane to, ooh, germane. Oh, germane. That's good. Mm, I like germane. My favorite uh, Jackson. <laughs> germane Gatsby is uh, where I'm going here. Oh, right. But germane Erica too. Roebuck has a new novel out, which is a paperback original. Friend called- of the site. Erica yes, she is a friend of Book Riot. She's a really nice person. Um, but, and her book is great. It's called Call Me Zelda. And it is a novel about Zelda Fitzgerald. Um, it's one of three novels about Zelda Fitzgerald that have come out this spring. Zelda is having something of a moment, too. So that's out. Um, if you'd like the woman's perspective um, on that whole Gatsby story, you should take a look at it. And uh, one of our writers at Book Riot compared Call Me Zelda with uh, Therese Ann Fowler's novel Z. 
Okay. Uh, so that's another of your choices. If nonfiction slash memoir slash books about books are your thing, there's The World's Strongest Librarian by Josh Hanagarn. Uh, he grew up with Tourette's syndrome and eventually learned to conquer it through strength training. I have not read this book, but this sounds fascinating. I, I can't believe all the adjectives that are about to come. You haven't even heard them all, so wait. Let, 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 <laughs> right. He is a librarian who also runs a blog about books and weightlifting. And the book is his memoir, I guess, about learning to conquer Tourette's um, through weightlifting. Also, really interestingly, he is, I think it's really interesting, but this is one of my kryptonites in books, is that he is Mormon and his Tourette's hit the peak of its uh, being problematic in his life while he was on a mis- on his mission as a, um, as a young Mormon man. man, which just sounds like he's got great stories. I, he must. The whole, I can't, it's like Mad Libs that people put in stuff for what this guy is about. It sounds great. Some people does, we know love it, have read yeah. the book and love it. Really excited to read that. Also, I love Audrey Niffenegger. If you liked or loved, as most people did, The Time Traveler's Wife, um, you might have also had feelings about Her Fearful Symmetry, which was her second novel. She has a new book out that is a picture book slash graphic novel. Oh, I wonder why I hadn't heard more about this. I was like, well, she has a new book out and I hadn't heard about it? Okay, that makes sense. It's sort of amazing still that we're not, that yeah. we're not talking about it. She's, I think her name is too hard to say. She's a beautiful illustrator and she's done several books. Um, God, where the imagery talented. is I hate her. just gorgeous. She is. She's so talented. Um, So Raven Girl is out. I don't have any idea what it's about, but it looks gorgeous and I'm going to pick it up. Um, And if you're ready to dig into paperbacks, because it's that season for throwing. I can say something about some of these. I've read some of these. Beach Bag, uh, new in paperback this week is The Dog Stars by Peter Heller. Really good. Which uh, I haven't read that one. It's good. It's really good. It's like end of the world. Yeah. Colorado dog and uh, a man and his dog at the end of the world. They have a plane too. It's fantastic. Oh, nice. I think uh, Liberty on our site said it's like an uplifting rewriting of the road. That's a, that's a good way to put it. I love, it. Speaking of genre kryptonites, that's something we do on the site. For those of you who don't know the site, where we, you know, we have certain subsets and, of genres that you know, we can't resist. And one for me is I call them man and a horse, man and his horse genres. Mm. It's like his, his, a man and his horse, a man and his dog, a man, a man and his trusty rifle you know, setting out against the world. And this is, this is kind of like that. Peter Heller, really good. I recommend that. That's a yeah. good, it's, it's, it's pretty short too. So um, if you got a plane ride, you're trying to kill Ooh, cross country or something this summer. It's a good one for that. Uh, one of my favorite books of last year is just out in paperback this week. It's called Seating Arrangements by Maggie Shipstead. It's about a waspy wedding weekend in New England. Uh, there are like affairs are had and long held secrets are revealed. All sorts of ridiculous capers take place. Um, there's a sort of a comedy of manners feel to it um, and a look at absurdity, like sort of the absurdity of trying to maintain your proper mm-hmm. waspy uh, family appearance when really everything is falling to pieces inside. Um, it's just a fun, awesome, super well-written summer story. I mean, read it any time of year, but especially if you're thinking about what you're going to like drink a nice spiked lemonade on your <laughs> back porch in the sunshine, seating arrangements, is, which hello, weekend plans, right. uh, seating arrangements was so great. If well, you uh, if you read Courtney Sullivan's Maine a couple of years ago, seating arrangements filled that place in my heart last summer. I haven't read this one, but and there is no official designation. But I have to say, enough of our writers have loved this book that this we have to say this is book writer approved. This for one. sure. I mean, everyone who's read it for the site has really enjoyed it. It's great. Um, and it's a debut novel. It's one of those debut novels where you read it and you think, I cannot believe this is this. Oh, yeah. First so go book. buy that. 
they do levels. Go buy that. Don't get it from your library. Go buy that. Help her yeah, out. Yeah, seating her, arrangements. It's great. And it's a good one. You know, like read it and then pass it on to someone that you like who also needs a good book to read this summer. That one's great. Um, All right, and one more. You got one more. One more. This one is Sorry, Please, Thank You by Charles Yu, which is a short story collection. Um, Charlie's novel, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, is one of my very, very favorite. I love favorite that too. I haven't read the new one. I haven't read this one, but I love this I haven't one. read it either yet. This one went under the radar. Was it just me that after Science Fictional Universe, this one kind of snuck in? It did sort of sneak in. Yeah. Short story collections are so hard for publishers no, to make true. a big deal about. But it is the year of the short story. Uh, apparently. No, no, I'm kidding. I mean, that's <laughs> what people say, but I'm not so sure. Um, but his writing is just so it, it's fun and playful, but it's never light. There's this great no. substance to what he has to say and to the way that he handles the issues that he presents. And there's always sort of a genre twist, but I never feel uh, like I'm not in the scene enough to understand the references that he's making, especially to science fiction. But yeah, um, so that's sorry, please. Thank you. I, I have nothing to say about that. And I'll just use an excuse to say, go read How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. We, yes. we can say that. And then if you like that, and then read this one and love that, or don't, or have something to say, let us know. Yeah, and How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe is basically a father and son story. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a good way to think about it. Mm-hmm. So There's time travel, but, you know. All right. So we got one more story. We got one more. But we, we got to do our second sponsor first. Oh, we're right. we're going to have two sponsors eventually, we, we think. But for this first one, um, we're, we're the sponsor. We are. We are, because we have a Kickstarter going. Right now, ends May 25th. It's for the second volume of our Start Here project, I guess. It's a whole, it's a, now it's a project. There's two of them, right? Or a series. The, oh, a, that's what we call multiple books. A series. <laughs> I forgot that. Someone should think of a word yeah. for that. So here's what we do. Um, we take uh, authors that you've always wanted to read, but don't know where to start. And we write chapters that walk you through a few ways, um, not a few ways, a few books that you might read to get into them. So say, start with this book and then try this one and then this one. And if you like that, you've got a good sense of their author and you can go off and read other things. And if you don't, you've got a good sense of what they're doing. The first volume was a great success and we're really proud of it. We're both really proud of it. I would say, I'm not going to speak for you except that I just did. And um, <laughs> Go right ahead. Go right ahead. And uh, you know that one had chapters on Charles Dickens and Murakami and Colson Whitehead and Ian Forster and Bernard Malmood and Jane Austen and Sherman Alexie. Um, there are women in that book, I promise. Yeah, I, what are, yeah, there are. There are. Um, <laughs> Margaret Atwood, friend of the yes. site. And um, we're going to do another volume. We're trying to do another volume. Um, if we meet our funding goal by May 25th, you can go check it out, kickstarter.com. Oh, I don't know what the URL is. Hold on. Let me look it's up. long. Oh, yeah. If you, you search for Book Riot on search Kickstarter. Search for Book Riot on Kickstarter or start here on Kickstarter. Or if you go to bookriot.com, in the right-hand sidebar, there's a little widget um, that'll take you right to it. I like um, that word. Yeah, widget's really good. So, you know, you can get in for as little as a dollar. Five bucks gets you the ebook of Start Here Volume 2 when it comes out. And then on and on from there, there's some other good things you can have there. So that'd be great. So that's, that's we're sponsoring ourselves this week. We're not yes. going to do that too often. But uh, for this first time, we thought we would. So thanks so much for uh, those of you who have sponsored it. And if you haven't, consider it. And if you don't want to, that's totally fine too. But uh, take a look and help us out there. So All right, last story. This is you again. No, this is you. No, this is you. Okay, this is me. It's you. All right. Uh, so this is a piece that ran um, this weekend beyond the margins, beyondthemargins.com, talking about word of mouth. Um, and the title of the piece is What is Word of Mouth Anyway? And it's a guest post by Catherine McKenzie, basically trying to figure out, you know, long been said that word of mouth is the best way to promote a book, that people hear about books, people find what books are going to want to read. But it's, you know, kind of a secret sauce. No one knows how to control it or market it exactly or promote it or you know, use it to their advantage to sell books. And so there are a couple of studies in this particular piece. One is the author did an informal poll of herself 
and her readers asking, you know, how'd you find out about that book? And then um, a link to a larger study uh, done by the Codex Group last year. Yeah, last year, mm-hmm. asking people how they found out about books. And you want to look at the, you have the results in front of you? Should I run through these a little bit? What do you think? What do you think was interesting about this? I'm interested in the idea of doing these surveys yeah. at all. Um, because most of the time I feel like even if I can remember the very first time that I heard about a book, right. which I can't always, how I decide what to read and how readers that I talk to decide what to read does seem like it depends so heavily on the secret sauce. Right. Yeah. There's some mystical combination of I read about it on a site and then my friend said that she loved it. And then I saw an interview with the author on this other place and then somebody else told me <laughs> right. about it. And at some point you hit the tipping point in your brain based on each of those factors and the weight that you give to each of those factors in your own individual idiosyncratic way of picking right. books that then you decide it's the thing that you want to read next. Oh, the graphs in this thing are tiny. Yeah, they're, they're small. Um, we'll drop a link in the show notes, but it's on beyondthemargin.com. A couple of things strike me right away is that the um, poll that Mackenzie herself did of her readers um, and people she knew online, let's see, she picked, she has what, six, ten options, mm-hmm. um, and none of them got more than 14%. Which is really interesting. Which is really interesting. So that means the cover and word of mouth were both at 14%. You know, I, I don't know what to say about that, except that this idea that the word of mouth is overwhelmingly the way people discover books, at least by that poll, doesn't bear that out. In the Codex group, um, there's not one that's called word of mouth, but would you call that the personal recommendation? Would you call it, say that's the word of mouth section? I guess. Yeah, the choices, um, they have five choices, browsing online bookstores, online media and marketing, personal recommendation, a physical store, and everything else. Right. It's, that's so hairy. Like online media can be word of mouth. I think if you're reading a blog. Well, that's one of the things I was going to ask. Is like, what do we even call word of mouth these days? Like someone I saw on Twitter said, well, word of mouth is someone telling me verbally in person about a book. I was like, whoa, that's whoa. really right, more because, stringent than I think about it now. And the percentage of interactions, I don't know, maybe we live in a bubble, but the percentage of interactions I have with people talking about books face to face versus. Well, and you even go outside. I mean, that's right, what you can talk right. about me. Every now and then I do go outside. Um, but no one at the gym is talking to me about what oh, yeah. to read. Yeah, it's, it, it seems to me like I don't... Well, in this, this study this, the Codex Group did, personal recommendation in December 2012 was only 19%. Yeah. Um, physical store when, was 20%. And so is that, that physical store thing, is that you just saw it on a... I to me, these terms, the terms are not defined yeah. enough. Like if you just see it on a table in a physical store, okay. But are you, what if you're in a physical store and a bookseller puts it in your hand? Wait, wait, that, I got to, I got to tell the percentage to the people. Okay, sorry. Radio is theater of the mind. So they got to, they got to know. So 7% was the lowest browsing online bookstores, booksellers, excuse me, which mm-hmm. is a topic of it in itself for another day. Um, 10% was online media and marketing. Um, 19% personal recommendations. We're saying that's word of mouth, I guess. Um, 20, boy, it's so small. Is that 20%? Mm-hmm, 20%. 20% a physical store and 44% helpfully everything else. everything else, which means we have no idea what we're doing. Right. That's, that's what that says to me. Right. That's how readers discovered the last book they yeah. purchased. And you know which, what I would say is everything else. If I was yeah, asked this question. I would too, unless, unless I just happened to know for sure that the bookseller put it in my hand. Well, how, let's take this for example. Like say someone's listening to this podcast right now and they go pick up sitting arrangements. Which one of those things does that fall into? Mm. online media maybe maybe i guess we're media and we're online but it's also that's also but, tied with the coordinating conjunction to marketing right and we are we're people though we are people <laughs> so hopefully some of the people listening to this know us so this yeah. recommendation could be personal right um, it could be everything else 
It could be everything else. The only thing it's, it really can't be is a physical store or online booksellers. Right. But it could fall. I mean, you could reasonably put it into any of those categories. It's this is the thing that publishers and authors want to figure oh, out, it, so it they frustrates can them to no end. So they can I crack why. how to get books to readers. Um, but until I don't know if there's a right way to ask the questions. All I know is that we're not asking it the right way yet. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's maybe you have to go future looking. Like pay attention to the next time you hear about a book mm-hmm. and buy it rather than last time. Sure, so like one of, of those, mind. like a long-term study where you give people a journal and it's like write down the title the you first you time need, you hear you know, about a this book is the you think first is interesting. Good use for Google Glass, I can think of. You just oh, record right. everything everyone sees, and then <laughs> when they buy a book, you re- you roll the tape back and see how mm. they saw it and how they talked about it. I mean, for I, you and I, I think are both yeah. similar in this way. It's like Twitter, man. It, yeah, and 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 the people site that, and the site are, are and, people right, and our, our writers and people yeah. that we know who love yeah. books who who know our taste and say. I know you and what you read and you're going to like this book. Um, because here's another one. Uh, which one of these things is Goodreads? Oh. Online media. Yeah, I guess online media. But if you're a friend with someone on Goodreads that you it's, know. Is it personal? personal? I think, it's, you know what? These categories weren't helpful 20 years ago and it's even less helpful now. <laughs> <laughs> Some right. of this and stuff is so blurry. You know, and like self-report data is just so interesting in general for right. studies. But that we, I mean, readers are smart and we, I think readers pay attention to how they learn about books and to what appeals to them about right. a book. But it is so complex and there's a lot of discussion about how you need to hear about a book like seven times or 11 times or something before you I make think, that decision. I think decision. marketers came up with that to sell to, more Yeah, somebody, somebody came up, yeah. lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> yeah. Which Mark Twain didn't actually say, by the way, his biographer right, did. Right, but I'm going to keep quoting no, it No, anyway. that's fine. Uh, lies, damn lies, and quotations. Right. Yeah. There's your uh, your new project, yeah, Jeff. Exactly. But you ask people this question, assuming that they can answer it, and yeah. that the answer will be accurate and Repeatable useful and controllable to you. And it's just just very not. Difficult. I'm glad that's not my job. Me too. It's very difficult. I mean, I'm glad that I have just decided discoverability is not a problem. Well, you know, that's also a longer conversation we've had sure. before. But you know, this as a reader, I don't really care about this because I don't. I'm not like, how am I going to find out my book? Let me go ask for a personal recommendation from someone. Like, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. But I can understand if you're a publisher, like, let's say discovery is a thing that needs fixing. Well, what are the outcomes? Well, I guess one would be that more books are sold in aggregate, right? Like, if mm-hmm. discovery is a problem that has a solution, one outcome would be we're just selling more books, which is good for publishing, good for people who care about books, blah, blah, blah. I'm not so sure that's true. The second would be, that people are happier with the books they're reading. Mm. Like they buy the same number of books, but their recommendations are better somehow. That sure. the books that are burbling up to them are, you know, really suit their taste. So you're selling the same number of books, but people just like them better, which I guess is better than not, but it doesn't really help the bu- publisher's bottom line and authors are still trying to get reviews and stuff. And then I guess the third would be that people buy the same number of books, but if you're a publisher or author, they buy more of your stuff, Right. Mm-hmm. That you tweak the the bar graph of what gets sold where to whom. So the, the size of the market stays the same. But just if you think you have better books for people, that if you can solve discovery, they will find your books and then you will win because you are better. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, that's one thing when people talk about discovery, I'm not really sure they've said too much is what does a solution look like? And it has to be one of those three things, right? Like yeah, those are I the three possibilities. It does. Hopefully it will be, I, I want a solution that's better for readers. Yeah. You know, if we're going to find I a solution. I don't think the reader cares about see but right. different sort of um, the pie of book buying is sliced up differently i mm-hmm. think readers might care about a or b agree probably b even more than a just if you read the same number of books you just like them better mm-hmm. because the 
total number of books sold, I'm not sure is a discoverability problem. That's a time problem. Yeah. That's an attention problem as much as anything. All right. I went on a jag there at the end. Sorry. I've you did. That, it's a good jag. I had that be in my bonnet for a while about discoverability. Was that was, moves like Jagger? Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> oh, that was bad. I'm, I'm really old sad. enough now. <laughs> I'm watching a lot of The Voice lately. Adam Levine is in my head. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, always, always in your head. Sorry, guys. And that's, that's the last story we have. Anything else? That's it? Uh, I think we're good. All right. So that's, that's, that's our first episode. Week. I hope you guys liked it. If you've got suggestions for us, um, podcast at bookriot.com. That's a good way we're going to be checking that. Mm-hmm. You can find both of us personally on Twitter. Yes. Um, I'm at Reading Ape. And, and I am at Rebecca Shinsky. Spell that, spell that for the folks. S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. And if you hit us up on Twitter, we will respond. Yes, I guarantee will. you we will. Um, you can find the site, bookriot.com. Um, sometimes we'll talk about stuff that's on the site, but not every week. Um, if there's something particularly interesting, we'll do something that. We're on Facebook, facebook.com backslash, no, forward slash Book Riot. And then Twitter is at bookriot.com. Yep. Thanks so much for listening, guys. No, Twitter is just at Book Riot. Twitter's at Book Riot. Right, 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 right. You're Um, fired. Oh, damn it. I was hoping I'd make it through one podcast before getting fired. (laughs) Yeah, thanks so much, guys. And we'll uh, talk to you next week. Yeah, thanks. Thanks.